The thing about it is, is every human wants to be seen. Every human wants to be known. That's like our deepest desire, is to be fully known and fully accepted. And so if we think we don't want to be seen, it, it's nothing to be ashamed of, but it's, re, it's revealing an underlying insecurity or belief we hold about ourselves that isn't true. That isn't true. And that our conscience has been corrupted by something in the world that's come and told us something about ourselves. Right? And then we can think we pick up on Yes, there it is, right? And there may be something there, but the judgment that we make about what it means that it's there is there is the thing that is wrong, right? And so if you feel ashamed of yourself or you feel that you don't want to be seen or if you see yourself and you feel, oh, man, you don't have to try to figure it out. Neither do you have to try to hide yourself all the time, but you can just tell God, Michelle. right? Did you see your brother making fun of me? <laughs> I was making fun of myself, actually. Because no one wanted to be seen less than me in the history of human beings. I'm the chief of all people that does not want to be seen. Right? Honestly, <laughs> I really am. And so, and it was for that very reason, right? That I had a, adopted something about myself that I got from the world. I didn't come up with it myself. The world presented it to me as evidence. And I looked at it and I thought, yeah, that makes sense. Right, because I could find something in me that seemed to be, uh, what do I want to say? It seemed to fit with what was said. Right, and it makes you want to hide yourself. If you notice in the garden after Adam ate from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, he saw his nakedness. He was always naked, but now he became aware of his nakedness, and he wasn't just aware of his nakedness in talking with God about his nakedness and how he felt. But it says he ran and hid. Right, and so. You want to be known. Everybody wants to be known. That doesn't mean that you, you want to uh, perform or something like that. But everybody desires for people to know them and for people to love them based on what they know. And the world wants to convince you that if anybody knows you, they'll reject you. Because you, who you are, what you have, your persona, whatever you want to call it. It's not exactly right. And if you ever let anybody in, if you ever make yourself vulnerable, what if they reject you? Right? And so we live in the world all the time processing that and not actually allowing ourselves to be known. We put How much of ourselves do we put out on the table for people to know? And how much do we hold back? Right? And, and if we hold it back, why do we hold it back? What are we afraid of? What are we afraid of? What are we protecting? I used to try to use the gospel to keep myself from confronting the things that I felt fear about. But now the gospel, I realize, it, it come and strengthen me to the place where I'm not ashamed of my weakness. And I hear the voice of God come to me and say, what if they do reject you? What if you lay it all out there and you just let yourself be seen and be known? No walls, no nothing. You're just out there vulnerable, naked so to speak. And what if they point at your nakedness and they laugh? What if they're ashamed of you, right? What if that? What if they do that? Don't try to live your life trying to keep that from happening and thinking salvation is on the other end of you keeping it from happening. Salvation is on the other end of you being confronted with, what if it does happen? And then you seeing God in the place of what if it does happen? Because what it does is, is it removes the sting 
of people rejecting. It removes the sting of people pointing and laughing. And then you're not living by that, right? And you're out there and you're able to be known. You can't really know other people if you won't let them know you. And human beings were designed to know and be known. That's what we were designed for. And if we live our lives in fear of being known, we'll never know anybody else. And we will think that protecting ourselves from being rejected, we think that's helping us. It's not. It's killing us. It will actually create more anxiety than the anxiety we would feel if we just put ourselves out there, tore down our walls, allowed ourselves to be vulnerable, and people rejected us. There's more pain and fear and anxiety within keeping yourself from being known than if you make yourself known and people reject you. There is. That was a whole lot of mouthfuls. I hope you guys understand what I'm saying. And in case we, we hadn't picked up on this yet, we believe in the grace of God. And so what that means is, is if you find that you're hiding yourself, that, it doesn't mean that you must now stop hiding yourself. That's not what it means. If you find there's parts of yourself that you feel ashamed of or embarrassed of or that make you feel naked, it doesn't mean you must now stop doing that. But what it does mean is begin having a conversation with your Father in Heaven about those things. Right? And stop internalizing what you feel when you feel that. And start talking out loud with God. We tend to internalize the things we feel. And then next thing we know, we're twisting on them and drawing all these conclusions. One of the most powerful things of the gospel is it'll bring you to the place where you no longer internalize the fears, the pain, the anxiety that you feel. Not, no, nor do you keep it hidden any longer. But you get it out loud. I mean, James come and said, confess your faults to one another. He says, we're not living in the place anymore where we're masked. We're not going to come together and act like we're straight. Because that's the Adam thing. That's the Adam mind when we were ashamed of our nakedness and we were trying to clothe ourselves and keep ourselves from our nakedness lest anybody see our nakedness and we're exposed. The greatest thing that could happen to you is for people to see your nakedness and for you to be confronted with your nakedness and in that place see that you've been clothed by God. The greatest thing the gospel of grace comes to do is it comes to make you not ashamed of your weakness so that you'll start talking about it. And you'll stop trying to hide it. And you'll stop trying to pretend like it isn't there. And you'll stop trying to cover it up. And you'll stop trying to make excuses about all that. The gospel of grace comes and fills you with the confidence that you're not ashamed of your weakness. You're not ashamed of your nakedness. Here I am. And this is what the world has done to me. Here I am. Because from that foundation, you start talking with God about your weakness. And that's the foundation from where you find his strength manifesting in you and the weakness that came upon you because you were busy trying to clothe yourself now gets sent away from you. And you don't care. How many times do you guys hear me talk about how much I hate myself, I hate the way I preach? How many times do you hear me talk about how about judge myself for being too intense? If you go back and look at the progression of the church, in the beginning, I was all the time trying to prove that my intensity was good. Right? Because I still hadn't made peace. But then I start realizing, well, so what? Maybe, maybe for some people, I am too intense. What does that mean? And instead of trying to convince myself, no, 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 I'm not too intense. It's a problem for them. <laughs> I allowed myself to, maybe I am naked. And then I started talking with God. And that's the foundation from where you find liberty. 
right? Listen, guys, the Adam mind is to see our nakedness and think, we can't let anybody know. And should someone know, we're going to now self-justify. We're going to come and point at them and talk about how they're wrong and they're wrong, right? So when people would tell me I'm too intense, I wasn't like, oh, I'm naked, Lord. I was like, something wrong with you that you think I'm too intense. I felt like I had to be justified in my intensity. You're still walking after the flesh. You're trying to be justified by something that manifests in your life. Nothing, you can't be justified that way. That's one of the big confusions in the world. That's one of the things tormenting our society right now is people think they can be justified by the world saying what they believe and what they do is good. And so now you have all these different groups of people fighting to get the world to say the way they want to do life is peachy keen. And they're trying to find justification from the world. None of those things can justify you. Right? None of those things can justify you. Like, I don't know what month it is, but it's in the news a lot right now. Pride. Uh, The Pride Month. June. June. Okay. Now listen. The thing that's manifesting in them is no different than anything that's manifested in any of us. But that don't mean it's from above. And you see, they're trying to find acceptance from the world by getting the world or proving to the world that this is as it ought to be. And they're trying to be justified through something that's manifested in their flesh. That will never justify them. It never will. It's not the answer. The answer is to start talking with God about why you don't feel accepted. I hope that makes some sense, that everybody understands that, right? Like, I was claustrophobic when I was born, and that was a problem. Being claustrophobic is no different than having uh, a problem with sexual impulses or sexual urges. It's the same thing. So we don't despise people that feel attracted to the same sex. Neither do we think it's an intellectual decision that they made. It's not an intellectual decision they made. It's a feeling they have based on a lie they believed at some point in their life. And that feeling is so strong that they know it isn't intellectual. And so then they become confused about why do I always feel this? And then they think I must be created this way. And then they want to be justified based on that. That will never justify you. You'll always be fighting. You'll never find peace. You'll never find peace that way. Right? And so we don't need to try to justify ourselves based on what we see manifesting in our lives. Neither do we need to get to try to justify what's manifesting in our lives to other people. Neither do we need that. Right? In the day we feel lack, in the day we feel weakness, the gospel of grace comes to put you at rest with God's thoughts towards you. So you're not trying to hide it. You're not trying to pretend it's born from life. And neither are you trying to prove that it's born from life. You just say, Lord, this is what's manifesting in my life. I don't know why, I don't know how, and I can't get around it. But here it is. Right? You're the only one who can justify me. And then you stop trying to be justified in the eyes of people. An amazing thing happens when you stop trying to be justified in the eyes of people. You come to a revelation of how beautiful you are in the sight of God. And many times what will happen is the very things that you're seeking to prove are the good in the right way, they'll fall off. And they won't be there no more. 
And you'll be like, what happened? How did that happen? Every, every utterance of the world is the opposite of that. That's right. The TV would tell you, women, if you're not a size two, mm-hmm. and you're not 20 years old, you're worthless, right? Um, if you're not this, if you're not that, your friends, your family, judging you, and if you believe that, I mean, it's a constant barrage. Yeah. And, and until for us to know that we're his sons and daughters, um, that can't be taken from us. No. But they try. It is a constant barrage. Your justification is not found in being young or old. Right. That's the knowledge of good and evil. It's good to be old, it's, it's bad to be young, or vice versa. I was listening to Birdie on the way here, the justice of God, the old as young as he is. Yeah. And he was talking about, you have to really understand what justice means. And it was the first time I really sat and really thought about what does justice really mean? Because you hear it. You hear it all the time. And until you really understand, and it just depends on what situation you're in. Like, what, what is just? And then started from that point. And so what is justice is what is God's just. And God's just was to have ever, to live with us, to have everlasting life with us. Yeah. And to move from that point. Yeah. Because the world will say, you know, um, I want justice. You know, be, you know, Black Lives Matter wants justice. But what is that justice? What, what is it? What are they looking for? Yeah. Does that make sense? And no. So you have to go back to that. Absolutely. You have to first start with what God ordained for man and what he decided for man. What does God think is just? Right? And so you go back to what God thought of in the beginning. That's one of the reasons why we hammer that so much. If you don't understand what God was thinking of when he made man, you're going to have a big problem with your thoughts about God and your thoughts about yourself and your thoughts about the gospel being built on the right foundation. Right? Because if you don't understand what was in God's heart to begin with, you won't understand things like justice, righteousness, justification. You won't understand any of those things. You won't understand uh, condemnation. You won't understand any of those things. But like Michelle so beautifully points out, you have to first ask, what would be just to God? What would be just to God is in the beginning, God created man that we would enter his rest, meaning that we would see that he has given us all things that pertain to life and God-likeness, and we would eat from the tree of life and thus be glorified with immortality. That's what God thinks is just. For human beings to be glorified with his immortality inside of their physical bodies, for them to never be able to taste sin or death, for sin or death never to be able to come upon them, and for them to dwell in an earth where there is no sin and there's no death. That's what God thinks is just. Now from there, what would be unjust to God? If people he created for life were dying, that would be unjust in God's eyes. For people I created to only know life, to now be stung by death. That would be unjust. So God's idea of serving justice would be to come and remove the death. To come and remove the death. But we serve a just God, don't you know? That's Calvin's favorite thing to say. And I would say, amen, we do serve a just God. But we have to look at justice from the perspective of God. And you have to first know what would be unjust to God. To understand what his justice would look like. It's not retributive. We said this about the George Floyd um, case. This, this, this hurts people, and it upsets them. And they can stumble over, over the stumbling stone that is Christ because God's idea of justice is not for the police officers to be punished. That's not God's idea of justice. 
God would think it's unjust that all those people found themselves in those situations. God would think it's unjust that the police officer finds himself in the situation where they're left trying to police people. Because that would only be a symptom of the system of death being in the earth. And so God would see an injustice has come upon all those people. And God's idea of serving justice would to be deliver all those people from the symptom of death. Not just George Floyd. And the world can never give George Floyd justice because justice is not found in punishing the police officers. The only justice there is for George Floyd or any other human that perishes is if they can be raised from the dead never to be able to die again. That's the only justice there is. Right? And so if you're busy looking for justice from the world, woe is you. Woe is you. You're going to be filled with hatred, bitter envying and backbiting. You're going to be filled with hostility. You're going to be filled with violence. You're going to walk after the flesh. And you're going to find yourself never finding the justice you're looking for. And you'll always scapegoat people. And I'll finish by saying this. And we'll let Glenn, who's so graciously patient with me. Jesus is the Word made flesh. Jesus it was unjust that Jesus was nailed to the tree, wasn't it? Well, he's the word made flesh about what was unjust for humans. What was unjust for humans? That death had come upon us. We were nailed to a tree. So what was unjust was Jesus was nailed to the tree. He needed justice. Jesus didn't think justice was found as if, if I could avoid this cross. Because he, even if I avoid this cross, my body's still perishing. So he didn't see justice as these clowns that want to nail me to a tree, them being locked up and me not being nailed to a tree. He didn't see justice that way. He said the only justice there is for me, whether I was nailed to this tree or not, is if I could be raised in a glorified body that can never die again. And then he looked around and he said, the only way that can happen is if I put on this mortal body and put on an immortal body. And I can never do that by trying to preserve my life in this world. I can only do it by committing the life I have in this mortal body into the hands of the Father, who will then serve me with the justice I long for by raising me out of the grave and seating me at his right hand. And so Jesus is the Word made flesh about justice. He's the Word made flesh about what is unjust. Notice Jesus didn't scapegoat the people that were nailing him to a tree. He didn't think justice was found in those guys being punished. He didn't say, Father, punish them. So that I can find justice. What he said was, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Essentially, they've been taken captive by the sting of death. How many times are we Hold, hold on, I, I want to let Glenn jump in because he's been waiting so long. I'd like to throw in two thoughts that I believe are derived from this you know, swim lane that you have laid out. And by swim lane, you, know, you see those markers and the person stays in that lane when they're competing, right? It's a way of looking at things, okay? And, and let me get both things out, and if you feel that you and I are, are part in company with these things, that's okay. I, they, I feel in my heart, though, it makes sense to me. Uh, and I've derived them from these times, and it's okay if we part company here or there in small things that don't matter in the grand scheme of things, right? So you were saying something, and when you correlated sin with the word death, Start thinking about that. Like, you know what? Jesus doing these miracles, they weren't just a sideshow of magic tricks. 
your sins are forgiven. I'm going to touch you to remove the touch of death that's been afflicted. It's entirely consistent. It wasn't just a sideshow of some magic tricks. They do miracles in Asia based on all other gods. That, that's, that's not what he was doing. Your that's sins right. are forgiven. Your, the death that's been afflicted upon you is removed. It's all consistent, not some sort of weird sideshow. Okay? Now, the second thought is there's a documentary on Amazon Prime called The Heart of Man? As far as, and Dan Alexander, who's a Christian counselor, he's written like 20, 30 books, and he was mentored by Larry Crabb, who's written like 40 or 50 books, as far as, um, and he was saying, you know, um, uh, right now, and he's talking about the importance of Robert Justice, I'm going to look at justice also meaning relationship with the living Christ, being the justice that I can have here on this satellite of the sun is my justice here is relationship with the living Christ using that term justice if you which is like sin and death you know what I'm saying he says you know well respected author internationally uh, and dude I am more broken now than I ever have been but I'm closer now to the living Christ than I ever have been as well so the idea of it's not about magic tricks it's not about Jesus, you know, making me richer, making me slicker. It's about just relationship with the living Christ. Do those things resonate? So the, the, the thing that you, you're assuming, you're, I'm going to find fault with you saying that you're more broken now than you've ever been. I, I, would, I can't deny you what those words mean to you. Okay. But I would probably express it differently. Okay. Because the, the fact that you follow that up with, I'm closer to the living Christ than I've ever been would actually suggest wholeness. <laughs> and and so fair. I've never been more on my knees based on grief and consternation than I am now, but I have never been closer to the living Christ than I am now either. Yeah. You can become aware of the I don't even want to say aware. You can be persuaded of the inability of your flesh and the, the weakness of the life in this world. And you can actually find your heart looking at the life that's in this world and find that it's decayed and wretched. Absolutely. <laughs> and then through that, you will find yourself connecting with the living Christ more. Right? But the, the end fruit of that is that you enjoy your life more because you stop identifying with the life that's in the world. Right? And you identify with the life you have in Christ. Which, in the scriptures, is what it would mean to be rich. To be, to be rich would be to possess eternal life. If I have eternal life, I'm rich. Jesus prayed in Luke 4, he said that he came to preach the gospel to the poor. He wasn't talking about people who didn't have no money, or didn't have no sheeps, or didn't have no chickens, or cows. He was talking about people who didn't have life, that were dead in their sin. He came to declare to them the year of our Lord. Meaning that God has heard our cries and he has come near to us in human flesh and he has taken our death into himself and brought it into the grave and come out of the grave free from death, never to be able to die again. And he's held his hand out and said, here, here's the riches, the true riches, right? And so that's what it means to be rich. To be, to be rich means to possess eternal life. And within eternal life, if you want to call it a treasure, which it is, if you want to say it's a treasure chest, which it is, within eternal life, is the fullness of joy and peace and kindness and the fruit of the Spirit. That's what 
biblical prosperity is. Biblical prosperity is not that I have a McMansion. Although there's nothing wrong with having a McMansion. If you've worked hard and you find yourself in the area of the world where your hard work has produced these dividends, it's not like that's evil either, right? That's not evil, but we don't want to define prosperity that way. Because then what happens is, is our hearts end up seeking inevitably whatever we call our treasure. Wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also, Jesus said. And so there's nothing wrong with working hard and having an expertise that you're really good at. And if in the world system that's produced money, glory to God. That's not to be despised. But don't confuse that with true prosperity. And don't confuse that with being rich. Eternal life is what it means to be rich, and prosperity is to have the fruit of the Spirit all the time manifesting in your heart. It doesn't mean you never feel sorrow or ever feel grief. It means that when you feel sorrow and grief, it's not unto despair, but you find yourself connecting to the living Christ. I love how Glenn, I don't know if you guys notice, every time he talks about, he doesn't say Jesus or Jesus Christ. Every time he says it, he says the living Christ, right? It's telling you something about what Glenn's mind is filled with when he's connecting with Jesus. This guy's a lot. And it's kind of like the Job scenario, where all this hell come upon Job. To, he's despising his life unto sorrow. And his wife is like, this is what happens to a person who believes in God? <laughs> and that's what they're saying to Jesus. This is what happens to someone who has faith in God? Right. And so Job's wife says, just curse God and die, dude. Just curse God and then die. And so the misery can be over. And what is Job? I love what Job says. Job goes on to tell his wife that... Though my flesh should rot away from my bones, this one thing I know, my Redeemer is alive. My Redeemer lives. And that tells me that I will stand before my God in glorified flesh one day. Right? And so Job, in the midst of all the decay and despair that he saw in the world that had come upon his life, in the midst of all his confusion, his mind was filled with the living God. And knowing the living God in the midst of all that told him that even should this world Pull the flesh off of my bones. I will stand before my God in glorified immortal flesh. Job was rich. He was rich. He was prosperous. Right? Not in the world's eyes, but in God's eyes. Right? The poor in the scriptures, guys, is not talking about those that don't have money. It's talking about the poor in spirit, meaning that they're dead. Right? Does that make sense? You guys see that? So no, I don't know that I, I would uh, disagree with with any of your characterizations. That's there. beautiful as far as the Job thing. I need to go that and and write it down. Jesus is Job. It. Job is Jesus, right? Satan come before God on the day that the sons of God would come before him, meaning that they would come and declare God was their father. Satan would come there and say, "They're not yours. They're mine." Look at them. They're clothed in my death. They're not clothed in your life. They're not your kids. They're my kids. And then God would come and say, have you considered my righteous servant Jesus? And then Satan would come and say, the death of the world comes upon him. He'll reject you also. He'll curse you if the death of the world comes upon him. And then God would say, listen man, he's born of a woman, born under the law, He's born in this world that you're the prince of. He's already in your hand. And so when I say, have you considered my righteous servant Jesus, I say that in the full knowledge that he's under your system of darkness right now. And so there's Jesus going to the cross. 
And there's Satan accusing man to God. You're not the son of God. God isn't your father. Pointing at his body of death. And what does Jesus do in the midst of that? Abba. He cries out, Abba. Declaring that man is the children of God. And then what happens? Jesus comes out of the grave in a body free from corruption. And he appears in the heavenly place as the son of man and the son of God in a body that has no corruption in it. Satan's accusation couldn't stand there anymore because now there was a human who called upon the name of the Lord and had shed the death that had come upon his body and could now inherit the kingdom of God as a man. Immortality in his body. But that's what Job is highlighting. That's why it gets into, though my flesh should rot away, this one thing I know. Job is a shadow of Jesus. And it's depicting, if you notice, it says that Satan was all the time accusing the brethren to God. Mm-hmm. What was he saying? Well, he was saying, man isn't yours. They have not called upon you. They don't believe in you. They're not clothed in your life. They're clothed in my life. They're, look at their body. It's full of death. It's full of sin. They're mine. They're not yours. And then God would say, well, listen, man, I can't lie. And so if I called man my children in Genesis, and I said that they're my image in Genesis, and I called them son in Genesis, then it must be that they are. And so then God brings up Jesus. Have you considered Jesus? So, uh, Greg, even though I, I, I love the King James Bible, however, everything has its merits and demerits, okay? Here's the King James version of uh, Job 19.26. And though after my skin worms destroy this body, yet in this flesh shall I see God. On this satellite of the sun, no matter what happens, yet I shall see God. He was calling upon the name of the Lord. And Satan was basically saying to God, The death of the world comes upon your righteous servant, Jesus, because Jesus is the just one. He's the righteous one. That's what it's talking about. And Satan says to God, should the death in the world come upon this guy, Jesus, he ain't calling upon you, bro. He's going to do like everyone else did, and he's going to try to preserve his own life. He's going to do like the first Adam. He's going to try to clothe himself. And God said, he's born of a woman, born under the law, in the likeness of sinful flesh in a body that possesses the ability to perish. <laughs> right? And we get it twisted. We, God says, behold, he's in your hand. When we hear that, we think it's saying that he wasn't in Satan's hand and then God put him there. Well, if I say, behold, there's Michelle, was Michelle already there or did she become there when I said, behold, she's there? So God was just acknowledging that humans born into the world are born under the prince of this world system, right? Not you and me, because Christ has come. But in that day, that's what it was. Does that make sense? Do you guys see that thing with Job? Job is trying to highlight Jesus. And it's highlighting the serpent accusing mankind to God. That's what the accusation... We had to be justified from the serpent's accusation. The accusation was mankind are not the children of God. Mankind are the children of the devil. The evidence was our body of death. Because God doesn't have any death in him. And here we were filled with death. And so the serpent was all the time accusing us. And God justified us from the accusation by sending Jesus into the world, born of a woman, born under the law of sin and death. 
born under the law of sin and death. Meaning death was reigning in the world Jesus was born in. That means there was no way for him to get out of this world without the death coming upon him. So now all the death, Satan's death, comes upon the man Jesus. There's Satan accusing man to God. Or if you really are the son of God, where's your God now? And he's accusing God to man. If he'll really have you, let him come for you. He's leveling his accusation against the brethren. And in the midst of him, his, him leveling his accusation, in the midst of all the death in the world coming upon Jesus, and Satan have, having told God that Jesus will come down off the cross, Jesus will try to clothe himself just like every other human has, he won't call upon your name, Jesus says, Abba! Into your hands I commit my life. And then God raised him out of the grave. And what does he come out of the grave with? With the body that has no death in it. So now there's a human who has no death in his body. So there's Satan trying to say that humans are the children, his children and not God's children. But now there's no evidence in Jesus' body to point to anymore. There's no more death there. There's a body free from death. So his accusation no longer has any power. Because there's a human who has shed the body of corruption. There's a human who has shed the body of death. There's a human who called upon the name of the Lord. And he's standing in the presence of God. Able to receive the kingdom. Because Paul would come and say, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, for corruption cannot inherit incorruption. So Jesus had to first shed the body that was corrupted, so he could be in a body that was incorruptible. And then he could receive the kingdom as a human. And then he could be sat at the right hand of God. And that would forever cast out the accusation that mankind is not the children of God. And that's the whole thing. So we were being accused, not by God, we are being accused by the serpent. He's the accuser of the brethren. God comes, if we want to use uh, court language, God comes as our defense attorney. And he comes to defend us against the accusation. You know, from, from, from the very beginning when we were born, we heard the word punish. We still hear, hear the word punish. Wait your father gets home. Um... <laughs> Or they'll get theirs, you know, the world isn't there, they'll pay. Or I hope they rot in hell, right? <clears throat> and I, we, I, I kind of have divorced myself from the word punish. Jesus and Job were not punished. And yet the world would say they were. Well, you know, it's interesting. I was just pulling out my e-sword, and I have the King James too, which I'm not a great fan of. But in between Job 1.5 and 1.6, it says in big bold, Satan was allowed to test Job. And it's like that's where the word, I mean, so when you just said the word behold, yeah. and then what does that mean? That that changed everything, but the, the Bible will even, I mean, so it's... Not the Bible, the... the, the, the Right, the, that's not in the Bible. Yeah. But that is what yeah. people see. The, right, the outlines, the head, the, the headers mm -hmm. that aren't actually in the text. No, yeah. but it, when you see it, you think it's true because yeah. it's in the Bible. Yeah. yeah. The only way you'll, you, and the only, we, we could say, well, if we remove that header, then people wouldn't think that way. I think the header is the symptom of the carnal mind. Yeah. And I think the carnal mind came first. And if you begin to know God accurately through Jesus, then you, you see everything I just said in the scriptures, and it makes total sense. That's why it's called the justification of life. How does he justify mankind against the accusation of the serpent that we're not his children? 
He comes and gives us his life as a gift. Well, if you have an inheritance in God, guess what that means? You're his offspring. You can't have an inheritance in God unless he's your father. And so by God coming and granting everybody free access to the tree of life, it's the declaration that he's the father of mankind. They, everyone has an inheritance stored up in God. The question isn't whether they have an inheritance. The question is whether they're going to claim their inheritance. That's the question, right? And not everybody comes to claim their inheritance. If you look at the year of Jubilee, which is a picture of all this, they would blow the trumpets and it would be declared that everyone's debt was removed. And then the call is, come home to your inheritance. And back in the ancient Hebrew Israel days, what that meant was, go home and find your name in the book of your tribe, and you'll see what part of the land has been plotted out for you. Well, you can find instances in the Bible where people didn't come and claim their inheritance the Jubilee. They didn't know where their name was. They couldn't find their name in the book. And so it's a picture of them not claiming their inheritance. And so if you look in the, the, the Bible, it says everyone's name is written in the book of life. It doesn't say our names get added to the book of life. It says all of our names are there. And then they get blotted out if we decide we don't want our inheritance. Right? And we see that kind of thing now. If you go look online, you can find all types of websites that list money that hasn't been claimed. Whether it be tax money or inheritance money or any kind of money that's there for someone, but they don't come and they, they don't claim it. And so the Bible makes a point to say people's names are blotted out of the book of life. And so when Jesus was raised from the dead and sat at the right hand of God as a human being, every human's name was written in the book of life. That just means every human has an inheritance stored up for themselves in God. It's his eternal life. And the gospel is the declaration to come home and claim your inheritance. But if you don't ever claim your inheritance, then you're not going to have your inheritance. Right? And you'll be blotted out of the book of life. Does that make sense? Everybody see that dynamic? What's up, Glenn? Michelle, in addition to these fake headers that have been added as far as in the scripture, it is Michelle, right? Uh-huh. The paragraph breaks in the New Testament warranted the original language. Right. So what that means is you got to be watching out for those paragraph breaks as well. So, for example, submit to one another out of reference to Christ. Hmm. we got to do a paragraph break on that one because we want to trump wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. So you got to be leery of the paragraph breaks. The scripture itself has a very cohesive message, but these fake headers... And some of these paragraph breaks inspired by the flesh that have been inserted, you kind of got to, you know, like what Greg says, you look at the context, but step back a little bit and see what the context truly is. Does that make any sense? No, absolutely, because if there's a paragraph break, subconsciously you'll read it and you'll stop at the end of that line. Oh, and you, you'll ponder the last part of that line. Oh, yeah, this is this is the lead sentence. Oh, it's beginning, uh, why submit to your husbands? Oh, that's what this is about. Oh, oh hold on right. a sucker. And that's Some all you're thinking of. Put the paragraph break there because of our own agenda. Yeah. Let's look at what the scripture is. is and we don't want to assign that type of malice, although that's not a false statement. It's a subconscious agenda. Yes. It's They don't even know what they're doing. It's based on their own heart and their own... Right. carnal mind that they would do that right 
the, the point of all that, just so everybody knows, I've been doing a lot of weddings, and it's been a long time since I said this. The point of all that is to be persuaded of the Father's love for you. That's how you submit unto one another. It's always a passive action in the Bible. Pa- it would seem passive to us. Because when we hear to be submitted to our wives, we think of how we must submit to our wives. Like an active action. How am I going to sort that out? How am I going to submit to my wife? But it's really describing something that happens on the inside of you as you become submitted unto the Father's love for you. Or as you become persuaded of the Father's love for you. That will do something inside of you where you're free to be vulnerable to your spouse. And that sets you free to be able to give yourself fully over to them. Not over to them with walls. Not over to them with, I must protect myself from them. Right? But it sets you free to be submitted unto one another. By being submitted unto the love of the Father. You stop trying to protect yourself. Right? If you're trying to protect yourself from your spouse, that's a recipe for great pain. And God is greater than that if you're doing it. So it's not like that's the end of your marriage. But if you're trying to protect yourself from your spouse, it's just a sign that you're not fully persuaded of the Father's love for you yet. And you want to keep connecting with that and allow Him to have His perfect work in you. And vice versa. But that's how it happens. So wives... You can't submit to your husbands. You can't bring that about in yourself. And the more you try, and the more you hear that you should, you might find yourself being angry with him. You might find yourself being angry with the people telling you that you must submit to your husband. Right? The way that it goes down is by being submitted unto God's love for you. That's what we're after. Now, how can we be submitted unto God's love for us? The Bible says faith comes by hearing. And hearing by the word of Christ. So we can be submitted by hearing the love of the Father for us. And as we feel persuaded that we don't have to take thought of our own life, because this guy has taken so much thought of our life, there's no space for me to think about it anymore. There's not like a percent left for me to consider my own life, because he's considered all of it. And then that will set me free from being guarded with my spouse. And that will allow me to give myself fully over into the arms of my spouse. It will allow me to be vulnerable with my spouse and not feel any fear, right? That's what it would actually mean to submit. We think submit means um, they're going to give you some orders to obey and you'd be darn sure that you obey them. That's not what submit means. It would be more accurate that to be vulnerable with one another, right? Give yourself fully over into the arms of the other. And when I do weddings, I add that in there, right? I, I bring in the vows that God makes to the people in their lives, in their marriage. And then I go into how God's love for them is the power to bind their marriage together. God's love for them is the power to bring forth the kind of marriage where they're able to give themselves over fully into one another's arms. And then I lead into, that's what it means to submit to your husband and husbands to submit to your wives. It means for the man to be so persuaded of the Father's love for him that he's able to give himself fully over to the woman, not holding anything back, not fearing what she could do to him or that she might hurt him, but fully plopping his heart out on the table innocently. And the the wives, they find the power to submit to their husbands by being fully persuaded of the Father's love for them. And they're able to give themselves fully over into the husband's arms. Right? Not fearing. Rejection. Not being afraid of vulnerability. You can't actually have intimacy if you're not vulnerable with the other person. Right? And the world makes us afraid of being vulnerable. 
And so then we build up little sections. We compartmentalize the areas of vulnerability, right? And so many times we can enter a marriage where we are vulnerable with 50%. This other, we ain't going to go there because what if they trounce on me, right? Well, it's true. They might trounce on you. That's where being fully persuaded of the Father's love for you removes the fear that you might be trounced upon. See, because if you're living in a fear that you have to be guarded against being trounced upon by your spouse, you may say it's good because what if they do trounce upon me? But if you're never letting go of those fears or being delivered from those fears, you're never engaging in the type of intimacy that marriage is supposed to be built on to begin with. And your marriage is doomed to begin with. Right? If if you're dwelling with people that you have to feel guarded with, because you're afraid of the harm they could bring to your life. Listen, man, that's not the foundation for intimacy. And that's what Ephesians is talking about. That's what he's trying to lay out. Be submitted unto God's love for you so that husbands, you're able to be vulnerable with your wives, not fearing rejection, not fearing being trounced upon. And you can give yourself fully over into their arms. And wives, as you are persuaded and submitted unto the Father's love for you, That will make you free to be vulnerable with your husband. To give yourself fully over into his arms. Where you're not afraid that he'll trounce upon you. And you're not filled with fear over what could happen. Of being rejected. Right? Fear dwelling in a relationship is a, a, a poison. It's a poison. And it, it will try to poison your thoughts of each other. Right? Because eventually you'll scapegoat the other person for the pain you feel. And you won't listen to the other person. Should they? Do you, I mean, there's a reason why God said we'll have Eve to be a help meet for Adam. It wasn't just that Eve would be a help meet for Adam, but that Adam would also be a help meet for Eve. It's just that Eve wasn't there first, Adam was. And if we have spouses, one of the greatest things about having a spouse is that we could hear them. Because they can sometimes see how the world is trying to come against our lives in a way that we can't see. And if we think we have to be guarded against them, what do you think we're going to feel when they come and tell us? Are we going to be able to sit vulnerably and not hear it as an accusation? And not hear it as pointing the finger or the uncovering of our nakedness? Or are we going to, be able, are we going to think they're against us? And we've got to justify from what they said. Right? I thank God for Becky. And I thank God that sometimes if I'm in the middle of some darkness, Becky can see better than me. And she can come and tell me. Right? But if I can't receive what she tells me, then what good is it? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? If every time she tries to come and innocently tell me out of love about something that's tormenting my life, and I think, what's wrong with you, woman? Don't you know? And I try to prove her wrong? You see what I'm saying? <laughs> you guys see how that dynamic works? That's the, actually the only way marriage can work in this world. It's like almost the most impossible thing, marriage in this world. Now, you could survive your whole life by your willpower and just say, well, I took a vow and I love this man or this woman from the beginning, so I'm staying with them through thick and thin. And you can stay married through that way. And you can get it done. But rather, enjoy the marriage. And the way you enjoy the marriage is by you being so persuaded that God loves you, the walls in your heart come tumbling down and you're no longer afraid to be vulnerable. And you actually smile about being vulnerable. And you're actually happy. Maybe that's why he calls it one flesh. Yeah. And then 
your heart is plopped out open on the table, unconcealed, an unconcealed heart to your spouse. Because the fear of rejection, the fear of being trounced upon, has been removed by knowing the love of God for your life and how He's preserved and protected your life. Nothing can hurt it. And so you just plop it out. And then the other person does the same thing. Now you have intimacy, right? Intimacy. Intimacy. Where we remind each other of the truth. We remind each other of God. We remind each other, right, of the weakness that's in the world and how the world's trying to get us to clothe ourselves. We're reminded each other that within this, this dust body isn't the ability to comfort us or to justify us. And when we hear that, it can be painful sometimes if you're trying to comfort yourself. Hmm. And, listen, as you grow older, you, the world likes to call it flesh patterns. I don't like that word because I think it leaves people open to being confused about what that means. But as you grow older in life, many times you have something you've used to comfort yourself over and 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 over again. And you don't want to hear about it. And you like it. And you don't want it to go away. Right? (laughs) But sometimes you need to hear. It's not condemnation. It's just hearing. Listen, man, that can't comfort me. And it's actually been destroying my life. And it's actually contrary to me. Sometimes we need our spouses. To not point, it's not an accusation. It's I love you. I'm the lover of your life. And you're reminding each other, right? Listen, if I'm trying to comfort myself with something in the world, I may not like it if my wife's the one that has to tell me, but I want to be secure enough in in God's love for me that I'm able to hear her tell me. Do you see what I'm saying? And vice versa. I don't want to take it as an accusation. And once you, once you both become vulnerable and intimate with each other, you can start picking up on how to communicate that, right? You can pick up on things that trigger your spouse and make it more difficult for them to hear. Loving uh, remembrance. And you can understand that they tend to get defensive. And you can preface what you say by counteracting their tendency to become defensive. I'm not against you. I'm not judging you. I'm not angry with you or upset with you. I'm not trying to tell you to fix yourself. But I love you. And I can just I just know this thing isn't from above. And it's hurting you. Right? And then that makes it easier for them to hear. It can soften the blow. Some people don't need the blow softened. But sometimes people need the blow softened. Right? Sometimes any word about what they're doing becomes like, what? What'd you say? And then you become like, instead of the grace of God bringing you to the place where you can take a deep breath and say, am I trying to cover my nakedness? You say, it's that woman you gave me, Lord. (laughs) Instead of taking a deep breath and saying, is this woman just loving my life? And is she right? Am I trying to cover my nakedness? You'll find yourself able to consider that because you won't be ashamed if you're trying to cover your nakedness. You won't feel that that's a negative word about whether you're a good Christian or whether you're a good person. You won't look at it that way because you'll see, if I'm trying to cover my nakedness, it just means I want to be comforted. And it just means I desire life. There's nothing wrong with that. 
God isn't despising me because I desire life or I desire to be comforted. And it allows you to come to the place where you see, yeah, man, I'm trying to comfort myself. I'm trying to clothe myself. Thank God this woman told me. I'm saying woman because I'm a man, right? It, the, the situation could be flipped, ladies, okay? Oh, we know. <laughs> the situation, the situation oh, oh. can be flipped. But if you're married to somebody, the ideal place is to default to the place where if they come and say something about something going on in your life, the default should be they're saying it out of love. Not that they're pointing or uncovering my nakedness. They love my life, and they're coming just to remind me that this body, this flesh, this world can't give comfort, this world can't clothe. And they're just trying to remind me because they see the world has got me caught up in the place where I'm trying to do that. And because I desire comfort in life so much, I struggle to see. Right? And then you rejoice. Instead of telling God, because God said, did you eat from that tree? It's that woman you gave me. Instead of telling God that, you're like, thank God for that woman you gave me. Right? That she loves me enough to tell me. But you want to have ears to hear, and you don't want to fight about it. Just take a deep breath and consider and go to God. It's kind of ironic that the, the thing we want, all want most is love. Yeah. And, and th- there's somebody who wrote a book called uh, Scary Close. And in the beginning, he explains... Intimacy in marriage is, there is none, there's very little. So the book kind of leads you to these uh, exposing your whatever self uh, that you don't want them to know and have them accept accept you as you are, just like God does. Yeah, that's right. That's right. And if you, man, if somebody listening on this is in a place where... They feel like they're caught up in a fault. That's how the scriptures would say it in English. But when you translate it, to be caught up in a fault is to be caught up into the place where you're trying to clothe yourself and bring comfort to yourself. That's what it means to be caught up in a fault. You want to be able to at least be at the place where you say to yourself, I am there. Don't try to ignore it. Don't try to hide it. And where you tell God, Lord, this thing going on in me, it is not consistent with life. And I know that you love me. And I don't, I don't know that I can will myself out of it. But at least be able to say, this ain't born from life. See, the, the gospel of grace is supposed to bring you to the place where you feel peace being able to say that. Because you're not judging yourself negatively should you find yourself in the place where you're doing something like that. It's designed to bring you to the place where you see God's never judged you according to your sin. He's never judged you according to the fruit in your life. He's never judged you according to your works. That's why Hebrews would say that you can come to God with boldness. It means with an unconcealed heart where you could acknowledge to yourself, I'm trapped in death in this area of my life. Lord, this is not life. It's reaping destruction inside of me. I don't want it, but I don't find the ability to lay it down. That's the beginning of freedom. Right? Where you say that to yourself. Instead of trying to pretend all is well. No, no, all is well. The gospel doesn't come to tell you that it's well for you to be in destruction all the time. That would be God blessing the death that's found a way to manifest in your life. Neither does it come to make you ashamed of it, though. 
See, that's the world's way. Should a person be trapped in death and destruction, we're going to come and point at it. We're going to make them feel ashamed of it, guilty of it, and we're going to use shame and guilt to try to manipulate the right behavior out of them. God doesn't do that. He comes and removes behavior from the equation. And he comes and says, I've never despised you for being caught up in this. I've never despised you for wanting life. I've never despised you for wanting comfort and wanting to be clothed. I've never despised you from that. You don't have to hide your heart from me. You don't have to hide your fear. You don't have to hide your weakness from me. I know. And then what happens is you pop your heart alone. This thing ain't from you. It's been here forever. Right? And then you don't despise yourself or feel ashamed about it. But you start talking with God about it. And you start realizing, well, why do I do it? I do it because I want to be comforted. I know. Let me start talking to God about the comfort I desire. Right? I did all kinds of drugs to be comforted. I didn't realize I was doing this at the time, and I was saved. And I would have disagreed with this characterization of it at the time. But now I see that it's true. The drugs were my God. Because I needed comfort. I couldn't cope with the pain and the hurt that I felt from the world, my own judgments about myself. And I needed comfort. And I needed peace. And I used the drugs to find comfort. And I used the drugs to find peace. The drugs were my God. I didn't realize the comfort that I needed was in God because I had all these jacked up views about myself and God. And as he removed those away, when I realized the comfort I longed for is found in God. And when I started feeling the hurt and the pain, more and more I started connecting with God about the comfort I needed instead of going to get high. Right? Does that make sense? So whatever destructive things, should they be present in your life, just recognize you're desiring comfort. And the reason you're caught up in that destructive pattern is because you want comfort and you think that's giving you comfort somehow. And really the only comfort you there is and that you need is found in God. And so come with an unconcealed heart to God. Don't be ashamed to admit of this weakness that's manifested because of the comfort you want. And then start walking out, looking to God for the comfort you need. And start talking with God in those places where you feel that you need comfort. Right? And you start talking with God. And you'll find that God will comfort you. There is comfort for you in God. Right? Amen. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. My friends can testify to this. My friends believe, <laughs> most of my friends, I don't want to say believe is the right word. They are fully persuaded there's a God, even if they don't go to church. And do you know why? Because they see me, and they think, okay, there's got to be a God because that guy was the most degenerate human there was. And so it must be God. I even had a dream last night where I was in the classroom teaching people about what it means that Alpha and Omega is the high priest. Because we only look at high priests from a, a human perspective. But God anointed Alpha and Omega high priest all the way back in Genesis before he made humans. And he said, let there be light. That, that's when the idea of high priest came into existence. And I was in a classroom, a Bible college, teaching what Alpha and Omega was. And some of my friends from high school were sitting there. And I don't know why they were, but I started the class off by saying these guys could probably testify that they never imagined I'd be teaching any class about God. 
There's comfort for you in God. You don't have to pretend that if there's something destructive there, that it isn't there. That's not what grace does. Grace comes and says, God doesn't judge you should there be destruction there. He never created for you to be in a world where there's death. He never created you to be in a world where you're left dealing with pain. Right? But you don't have to pretend like it's born from above. You can acknowledge it hasn't come from above. Knowing that God fully loves you, even in the midst of all of it. And then you can start talking with God about the comfort that you need. Right? I never wanted to go to God about the the destruction in my life because I thought he despised me. And I thought I needed to be a good little boy, Christian boy. I was an altar boy, after all. And so I never could even connect with God for the comfort that I needed because I thought he despised me. And so I had to try to, like, clothe myself. If I could clothe myself enough, then I could, you know, be in the presence of God. Finally, I had to be like, no, come with an unconcealed heart. Lord, this thing ain't from you, and I can't do nothing about it. I remember telling God in the car, the last drug that I couldn't get rid of, that I, all the other one just fell off. This one I couldn't get rid of. I'm driving around in the car, and I finally had enough with God. And I was like, Lord, I can't stop. I know this isn't from you. I know it's not helping me. I know it's not the fruit of life. I can't stop. And I think I like it. I think that's the problem. I like it. I think it's doing something for me. <laughs> that's unconcealed heart. Right? And then I started talking with God. It's like we want to hide that little part. No, no, no. I don't like it. No, no. I don't think it's doing anything for me. Oh, yeah, you do. Just come out with it. Just come out with it. That it isn't born from above, but you like it. And you don't know, you're afraid of what life is like without it. That's what I was telling God. And that started this process of me having a conversation with God where he could then work liberty inside of me. Where I started finding the comfort I was getting from the drugs in him. Right? And the next thing I know, there you are. All is well. You see? It doesn't have to be drugs or alcohol. It could be a number of different things. It could be a number of different things you go to looking for comfort. Right? We all go to something in this world. I hope that helps somebody. Glory to God.